1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, a host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Andrew Johnson, professor at the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Metro State University in Minnesota, about his book, If I Give My Soul, Faith Behind Bars in Rio de Janeiro. Hello, Andrew, and welcome to the show. Hello, Ethan. I'm so glad uh, you're here to talk about this interesting book, but before we begin, could you tell us a little bit about your own intellectual interests and how you came to work on this project? So I, I became
2: interested in the topic of religion in prison in Brazil. I was working in Brazil, working actually with kids living on the streets of Sao Paulo. Uh, it was for a my master's degree in urban study. I was interested in big global cities in the global south and i was interested in the kids living on the streets there and and was working doing some research and and working at a house with some of those guys and there was overlap between the street population and the prison population in brazil um and while i was there i started to hear about these the uh the the the, kind of these independent prison churches that were run by Pentecostals all throughout the country. So I that stuck in my mind. I finished my master's degree, worked for a while, but when I came back to um, do my Ph.D., I knew the topic I wanted to study before the discipline I wanted to use to study it. And um, so that's that's how I came kind of came to it in that way. And I'm still interested in the intersection of faith and criminal justice and prison subculture. Um, so this book is in the middle of that.
1: Well, there are a number of very interesting anecdotes uh, throughout the book. Uh, maybe I'm just approaching it as a historian, but your your storytelling is certainly a little bit more lively sometimes than ours can be in the introduction. Um, so let's take a look at the introduction, where you tell the story of Carlos, to open up the book, a man who converted to Pentecostalism while in prison, serving a murder sentence. And you make a point of saying, and I'm going to quote you here, Pentecostalism resonates so deeply with inmates like Carlos because it offers a belief system and a set of practices that enable an inmate to embody a new publicly recognizable identity and a platform for prisoners to live a moral and dignified life. So could you tell us a little bit about this and the appeals of Pentecostalism, which might be a sort of foreign set of practices to maybe many of our listeners?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was fairly foreign to me. Um, In fact, I didn't really have an intention of studying Pentecostalism specifically until I went into the prisons and realized that they're very almost exclusively Pentecostal spaces. And so one thing about it is that Pentecostalism is it provides you a a visible identity. Um, And this is changing a little bit, but mostly Pentecostal would wear suits and ties and dress in a certain way. So you when you'd see the person, you'd see, well, that person is a, a believer, a Pentecostal. And for someone in prison You know, there's a lot. There's a big identity to 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 overcome as being a prisoner, and and Pentecostalism right away sets you apart. But it also gives a set of practices, so like this sort of day in and day out um, way of becoming this other person. And so, when I first got into prison, I I remember thinking like, wow, they have worship services like five or six times a week. I thought that you know maybe silently judging in my head. I don't know, but I thought that's an overkill. I mean, certainly there ought to be something else to do uh, or something somewhere else to focus their attention on. But then as I started to be there over time, I realized that like something was really happening in these services and doing it every single day. And the, some of the change happened in this day-to-day practice. And so Pentecostalism gives that provides that platform to people and it provides, you know, fasting campaigns and, and approaching each other with love and, and reading the scripture. And so there's all these sorts of things that it um, offer, that it kind of walks with a person as they become from who they were to who they are now.
1: I really admired the humanity with which you, you approach the topic here, because certainly I think sometimes historians of religion in Latin America approach Evangelical beliefs like Pentecostalism as sort of residue of the trauma of the Cold War, which you also touch on, but you're you're really able to capture why does this fill a role in somebody's life in a way that's understandable, and and I, I think that that makes it a really valuable piece of reading for that reason. Well, thank you.
2: Yeah, I, I while well, writing the book, I think as I I wrote the a dissertation and and kind of scrapped that, and I realized I was. Um, I didn't want to explain too much because there was there's some things that are happening that are above and beyond what I can understand. And also, I think it's as a, whether you're a historian or a sociologist, we see this a lot is that <clears throat> someone talks about their faith and it talks about their, uh, you know, things that are very deeply deep to them and say, you know, God has changed my life or this is what i'm doing now and they they give you a you know this very personal story and then for me to turn around and say well what's really happening is this that and the other and so i i uh i wanted to stay away from doing doing that and i had to catch myself at first and then it was actually much more comfortable to write when i said i don't have to explain everything
1: that's going on well i think the the book certainly benefits from that approach Let's talk about that methodology a bit more, which you detail in your first chapter entitled Into the Belly of the Beast. And it talks about um, your experience entering these prisons, where you go to study, how you study, Uh, and then very interestingly as well, the APAC prison system, uh, or APAC, I'm not sure how the the acronym is pronounced, uh, or sounded out in Brazil. But could you tell us about the prison system, your experience in it, and what kind of life it makes for the prisoners? Sure. So...
2: I had some experience with prisons in the U.S., mostly by visiting people in them and things like that. Um, and then when I got to Brazil, I I did r- realize that this is a very this is a place that I didn't know very well. Um, and so instead of jumping right in with interviews and questions, I really wanted to spend as much time there as possible. And so I found this the. APAC or APAC is what they is kind of how it comes out in Portuguese um, and way of doing prisons. And they were, it's a, you know, revolutionary way of doing prisons. There aren't any correctional officers and they kind of take care They the, idea is if you treat inmates with dignity, in fact, they call them uh, recuperandos, which is like people in rec- recovery or recuperating that they'll come out of there as better people and they're in some ways they're trying to export this model to different parts of the of the world with some success um and and I asked if I and I knew them and just asked if I could live in a prison uh for a couple of weeks and to my surprise they said I could i think in one way it almost proved the model works like if this guy can make it here on supervised for a couple of weeks we're not you know th- this thing is really working and so that's what I did to really start the project. Um, I I lived in a pri- one prison for a week, and uh, I kind of outlined in a book where I, where I the idea seemed great. I said, "This is a great idea. Um, I'm ready to go." And they signed off on it. And then all of a sudden, you know, the hour before I was supposed to check in, I just got this incredible sense of doubt and thinking, "What am I doing here?" Um, uh, you know what have I gotten myself into sort of a thing and anyway I got to the prison they gave me a blanket and a pillow and showed me to my cell there was three other guys in there and they were none of them were in there at that point but they all had their beds neatly made with you know and their 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 one shelf ordered and so I did my best to do ex- arrange my stuff exactly how they did and um one of the Uh, my roommates or cellmates came in and they said, you know, you can't have beards in this prison. And so I was trying to I had a pretty thick beard at the time and had one disposable Bic razor that was not doing it justice. It was not, do, it was not doing it very well at all. And I had blood running down my chin and he took my razor and snapped off the protective edge and then took a uh, cigarette lighter and burned off the other parts and just left me with a straight blade that was able to shave anything at that point. Um, but anyway, right away he was looking out for me and he kind of said, and it kind of said, Hey, we're, you know, I'm here to help you get through this or help you figure out how to do this. And which was a relief. And that was mostly the the response I got from the guys. There was about 80 guys living on my cell block and um, they really treated me with hospita- hospitality and they said, Hey, we're glad you're here. They said, I mean, one guy that kind of the head of the, the cell said, you know, people come here and preach or they might come here for social work, but there really hasn't been any, come here to live with us. And so we're glad you're here. Thanks for coming." Sort of a thing. And, uh, and he said, you're going to be safe, don't worry about it. And so a lot of my initial concerns were at least addressed, I guess, in the first few hours that I was there, that it became pretty clear that I was, they were glad that I was there. Um, In some way, it reflects well on them. Because in many of these places, a lot of these guys say, "I'm, I'm a different person than who I was and having someone there to see that is, um, important. And, and I was a novelty too. I mean, I was the first foreigner that many of these guys had ever spoken to. Um, and so I fielded that all sorts of questions about the U S or, you know, other sorts of things. And, and, uh, in that prison, like you got nothing to do, but talk and so you're just i was just involved in all sorts of conversations throughout the week at that place and the next place and the conditions there were reasonable i mean they i think by the u.s standards they weren't uh great but you know we had a piece of bread and coffee every morning and we had uh you know rice beans and a piece of meat usually for lunch and you know water and what have you and the, the guy below me had a jar of hot sauce that he would give me uh, to break up some of the routine. But part of it was that er, pretty early on, I realized like in prison, you know what's coming the next day. It's it's kind of the same rhythm over and over and over again. And then I also picked up on a lot of kind of the, the non-written, the informal rules that are important in prison also. And some of those by making some mistakes, nothing too terrible, but I mean, you know, just had being doing something, not not knowing that this isn't how they do it. It was useful for me to, to have that early on, so to avoid from making mistake other other mistakes, and then also really seeing the power of the Pentecostal volunteers coming in to these places where I was just sitting in the in the chairs like everybody else, and so to see it from that. Perspective was really powerful to me early on. In fact, going through that, I said, "All right, this project is going to be on Pentecostalism because even though I was in a largely Catholic state, in a cath, you know, Catholic city, the Pentecostals were the the by far the only I shouldn't say the only ones who came in there, but they were by far the the most consistent presence in this prison, and that was even more so when I went to Rio de Janeiro and. Uh, so I went to Rio de Janeiro for a year. I focused on one jail and one prison and visited that those places through a year. And then also the pastors who visited, the families of the, the inmates that I met. Um, when some of the guys were released from prison, I went to visit them at their homes or after and things like that. So I was able to spend a year, a year there.
1: You've already touched on some of the major themes of the book, and there, there's a number of very interesting ones. But the one that really struck with me the, the most is this desire to be seen and to be seen in a dignified way
2: mm-hmm.
1: that that comes across in your book. And you pick up why that's such an important need in your second chapter called the killable people. And I, I really like the analytics in here. I can already think about the classrooms I'm going to use this in. But the the killable people works through the social logic of whose lives matter and who are deemed killable in, in this sort of section of Brazilian society. So could you walk us through what killable people means and who are the killable ones and connect it to how these prisons operate?
2: Sure. So this was written before, like I did the research in 2010 or 11 before there was all sorts of language around the sort of thing. But basically the, I looked at the murder rates in Rio de Janeiro and I, to be honest, I forget what they are now at this point, but, uh, the number of people who are killed per year is remarkable, and it's gone. It was down during COVID, and it's back up again. To um, you know, I don't even want to say a number because I I, I have a it's the, in the thousands, and then also the number of people killed by the police, and whether this is self defense or you know warranted or not, that's just just the sheer number of people. I think it's in a couple thousand uh, are killed in encounters with the police every single year. And so just this idea that you have um, so many people being killed year in and year out and as long, and there isn't the sort of, and there is pushback and up, outcry and things like that, but it happens year after year. And so it's, and the people who are being killed are largely people from kind of the, of the poor peripheral slums or they used to call favelas, now they should call it communities on the hillsides or, and, and, mostly Rio spreads out from the ocean. So you have two or 3% is this beautiful postcard area, you know, with the green hills and the towns on the, on the slopes and these beautiful beaches and beautiful people and, and this and that. And you get a few, a mile or two away from that, and Rio is a tough city. I was just there a few days ago and it, it still is a tough, tough city. Um, and in these places, is where almost all of the Rios inmates come from. And that's also where Pentecostalism is the strongest. It's among the killable people. So they live in certain parts of the city, and in those parts of the city are the most Pentecostal spaces in the city.
1: So this, this perception of this place and these people as places where a certain level of violence is normal and accepted. It's not perceived at least writ large socially as a tragedy if if a death happens out there. This sets up your third chapter, Pentecostalism, which I think I've pronounced maybe a different way every time I've said it now, but Pentecostalism, the faith of the killable people. And it connects this history of Pentecostalism, which you set up in this chapter, as well as the work you've done in the second chapter, uh, to set up why there's an appeal to it. So could you talk through what's the appeal in the favelas and the prisons, to uh to pentecostalism which is a very unique practice of christianity
2: yeah it's uh it, it's it's unique it's young like it's only a hundred years old yet it's spread remarkably throughout the throughout the, the world really i mean from kind of a back streets of los angeles uh this re- very fringy part of christianity um kind of went through global missions and and landed in Brazil. It didn't do much. Um, I mean, the story of how Pentecostal got to the Brazil is kind of the most Pentecostal story possible. Uh, I think some Swedish uh, uh, Christians went to the revivals or heard about, and somehow were linked with the Pentecostal movement and they were in from Indiana. So they went to the library in Chicago and were praying about where God would send them. And, and, I'm sorry, this is before. They were praying where God sent them and they heard this para, para, uh, P-A-R-A. So they went to the library, they looked on the map, and they found it in the north part of Brazil. So they sold what they had. They got the support to go. They went to the East Coast to catch a ship. Um, I think somewhere, was it in Pittsburgh or Philadelphia? You know, they gave all their money to someone who needed, who 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 was in some sort of emergency situation. And, you know, sure enough, a couple of days later, someone just gave them the money that they needed to get on the ship. And so this idea that God provides miraculous sort of um financial and other sorts of resources when you need them is is part of it. They get to Brazil. Um, they start in the basement of a Catholic church and there's all sorts of resistance. but eventually over a hundred years or so the the faith moves through Brazil in a really tremendous way where I think in let's call it 50 years ago, maybe two or three percent of the country was evangelical or Pentecostal. and now maybe its next census might be upward of 30 you know, and so in 50 years, you have in this giant country of 200 and some odd million. It's a really remarkable story. It's also remarkable because it didn't happen from the, the, the elites and the powerful on down. It really happened from these uh, kind of marginalized urban neighborhoods that started to form as Brazil began to urbanize. And so it was this sort of bottom up and sure, certainly it was, you know, be, there was missionaries and things like that, but it was this bottom up sort of a, a deal. And I think in the, there's a number of reasons why, you know, they, they grew. I mean, and some are, first of all, beyond my explanation, there's some things that are happening that we don't know exactly why they're happening, but we can look at some things and where people are moving into these big cities, you know, the Brazil is going through a major social change and people are leaving the the very poor uh, agricultural north and northeast of the, of the country and arriving in places like uh, Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro and kind of alone and uncertain what was gonna happen. Um, and maybe not with the strongest Catholic faith behind them also. It appears that the though Catholicism was almost a monopoly it maybe that wasn't as deep in, in the daily practice of others as something else. So it was kind of ripe for a conversion change and people get to these big cities and they find a social network and also this real direct experience with God and a different way of living. Um, something I go back to this idea of living in a dignified way because, you know, there aren't a lot of ways to live dignified lives if you measure it among, if you're a poor Urban immigrant. If you measure it along strictly financial areas, I mean, I would like I mentioned. I just, I'm just I got back from Brazil last night, so it's kind of fresh in in my mind. But the, you know, still the minimum wage, which is a huge chunk of the workers, it's uh, if you do the math right, it's like three to four hundred dollars a month. And well, things aren't as expensive in Brazil. You know, a can of Coke is still a dollar or two. So it's it, there just isn't a way for many people to make it on that sort of a line, but through Pentecostalism, there's kind of a, a different model of how to how to judge the uh, uh, your value in society and things like that. And so I, th- I really think that was part of it. And that's what I saw in prison a lot too. this alternative paradigm alternative paradigm and how to judge your self-worth.
1: There are a number of stories you tell throughout the book in different chapters, uh, about the role of just touch of, of the physical and emotional connection that people are able to feel, uh, because of the practice that involves hugs and embraces that involves putting up hands. And the book has some great photographs of, of some of this as well. could you talk a little bit about these experiences in the prisons? How did the inmates experience these sort of physical and emotional practices of faith?
2: Yeah, that uh, you know, I that was a it was something that did hit me as I was I was there and I think when I was living in the prison, sleeping there and the volunteers came in, I saw these guys lining up t- for prayer and they would, you know, receive big bear hugs from the Pentecostal volunteers and they'd be weeping on their shoulders and they talk about their kids who they can't see and regret for the crimes that they have done or whatever it is. Just there's, there's a lot of emotion there. And all of a sudden there was someone that was there who was listening to you and hugging you. And it was, uh, you know, that was a big thing for me to, to realize the role that they had there. And then in Rio in the, um, the, the, the regular cell blocks. I mean, it's a very physical pl- I mean, the, the physical, I remember walking in there and just to set it up a little, the jail that I was in, it had eight cells, eight, eight call it 10 cells. Each cell is probably fit for 20 people. And, um, maybe, you know, with little concrete beds. And when it was full, there was 85 people in there. And so they would sleep, you know, two on the bed sometime head to toe, and then they would line themselves head to toe on the floor in this sort of hammock system as well, and there still wasn't enough room. And so some would it would take turns to sleep on the floor, and of course there's all sorts of hierarchy who gets to sleep where. But other guys would just take their shirts off and tie themselves to the bars and sleep standing up. And walking into these places, like there were so many people there, and it was so hot. I mean, the air was so thick that, that there was this visceral reaction when you first walk in there. Um, and then you know seeing these guys with their arms around each other during worship and um and also there was you know a lot of uh i shouldn't say a lot there was less than maybe you might have expect but there was praying in tongues um you know people being slain in the spirit i remember one guy came in uh and he started praying over people and i was i was in the in the cell block with the prisoners and so he was praying over people And everyone was falling down to the ground. And uh, pretty soon it was like I was looking around and I was surrounded by all these bodies just laying on the ground. And I was kind of the last one standing. He didn't pray over me. And I don't really know what was happening. They didn't overly, no one gave the theology for it. I knew they weren't faking it. I don't know exactly what else was going on. And that didn't happen very often, but there was this very palpable presence saying that this guy is tapping into a power that is not just kind of real in the abstract, but can knock down, literally knock off their feet. um, These powerful hardened criminals, um, you know, among, in, in their eyes. I mean, these are tough, tough guys. And so there was this sense of like, this thing isn't just happening in our heads. We're not just trying to get our theological constructs or abstracts in order, but there is a real palpable power that's at play here.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: It is such a little interesting. It's not a paradox. I, I can't think what to call it, but people stacked on top of each other but then they're really desperate for this particular kind of physical outlet. I mean, you remark mm. in the book that these are some of the only sort of positive embraces and touches you see between people in your time there.
2: Yeah, that's true. It, it, there's all sorts of touches because you're, you're literally s- sandwiched in like sardines for much of the time. But yeah, this particular type um, is uh, yeah, it's very, very rare. And
1: then also, well, yeah, I'll leave it at that. The next chapter of your book takes this setup that so we have this Pentecostal appeal, you have this killable, marginalized population that moves between the favelas and the prisons. And then you argue that the best way to understand them is to understand them as a gang of Pentecostals. And I have to quote you here because I, I'm not able to paraphrase the, the nuance of your argument. You, will, you do not argue that the Pentecostal prison churches are just gangs that have found religion or that the gangs are churches of violence. Rather, quote, I will show that understanding prison Pentecostalism's gang-like characteristics reveals how Pentecostalism not only survives, but actually thrives in Rio's prison subculture. So could you talk a little bit about what the distinction here is? It's not a gang that found religion, and it's not a church that does violence. It's something a little bit more complex than that.
2: Yeah, Um I think it's the malleability of Pentecostalism to fit its environment. Uh, I think is what I was getting at when I'm in that chapter. And so initially, like I said, the, kind of the older forms of more traditional forms of Pentecostalism. I mean, you see, you don't see this hardly at all anymore, but they'd go to the beach and the women would wear their dresses in to go swimming and the men would go swimming in their pants and shirts because they always were with this um, uniform, if you will. and, in the prisons uh the the gangs have have run the prisons for call it 50 years and in, in rio by far the most um powerful narco gang or is the comando vermelho the red command and in the 80s and so this this gang came out of uh kind of the the combination of you know, bank robbers and street criminals who were incarcerated along with um, political uh, prisoners as well, and they sort of blended these two areas of expertise, if you will, and formed this really powerful gang that still is powerful today. And they really dictate every aspect of of life inside of the prisons. So, as more and more inmates begin to convert to Pentecostalism, they would actually wear their suits, ties, and long sleeve shirts inside of the prison as inmates. Um, and they called themselves, initially, they would, you know, start to form their own group. And instead of the Red Command, they called themselves Christ Command, Commando de Cristo. And so all of a sudden, they had their own uniform. And instead of calling themselves a church, initially, they called themselves, well, this is like God's gang, sort of a thing. But that translated, Translated over, or that evolved into pretty formal churches, and they adopted the models of Assemblies of God mostly. Um, and part of that is because as these Assemblies of God and other Pentecostal churches grew, grew in these neighborhoods, like people really understood it. They understood what the pastor was and the bishop. And and in an Assemblies of God or a Pentecostal church, like you just need enough people to call you pastor to be pastor. And so. You don't have to go through seminary. You don't have to go through sort of this formal educational process. And so what this Pentecostal does is it, it reopens really the doors for a very charismatic sort of leader who may not uh, be able to go or even want to go through, you know, eight years of post-secondary education to finally be, get a shot to lead their own church. Um you can be in prison and you can come into prison, a hardened criminal, have a conversion experience and start studying to be a pastor and not that long. And certainly in Catholicism, you can't do that. You, you know, be, to become a priest is a, a very different process. And so the the church then kind of grew alongside of the gang. And I think um, it didn't necessarily affirm the gang's values, but some of them it did this, this sort of like sense of loyalty and so, and not wavering that came up all the time. Like either you're in or you're out. And so if you're going to join the brothers in the church and there's a worship service, everybody goes not because you, to be a good Christian, you have to go to a hundred percent of the worship services. I mean, there's, certainly there's some of that, but just to show everybody else, like we're serious about this. And when we don't, we don't, even if we're tired or we're sick, we still go to worship God because that's important. And, when they have visiting time and people's families come in, like if someone in the church doesn't have a visitor, someone from the church has to bring them in to their circle and their and share with their mother or their aunt. Like no one's left alone. And so it, it shows that like if you're in this, you're all in this. Um, and it's not easy to be in there. I mean, there's all sorts of like the gang has all sorts of rules to be part of the gang. The church has all sorts of rules as well. There's no smoking. There's no TV in there. There's, you know, mandatory attendance. And um, they both have very high bars to get in. They wear different shirts. And you're either you're in or you're out. Um, So... I think seeing the church like that and and being able to kind of adapt to its context, I think, is a uh, uh, it was one thing that really struck me by seeing these in there.
1: Let's continue on with those practices uh, because your next chapter is titled "Prison Pentecostalism" and it looks at the lived faith of Pentecostalism, the the practices especially. So. Could you you've already talked about it a little bit, but could you explain more why you looked so closely at practices rather than sort of talking theology with prisoners or, or thinking about faith? And then uh, secondly, could you tell us about some of these practices? You already mentioned some about dress and, and sharing and commitment, but talk a little bit more about that as well. Sure. Well, for the first
2: one, focusing on practice, I kind of took a cue from the gang because they also everyone looks at practice. Um, you get in a jail and your whole world's, you know, in most cases, like your life is just collapsed. Um, You land in this place and like mostly for something you've done. And there's a lot of guys who fall to their knees and say, Lord, help me. Uh, You know, now I'm ready to give my life to you. Also, there's people from the gang who leave the gang and the gang says you can go. If you're going to follow Christ and give your life to Christ, you can go. We're not going to i mean there's some if you owe a debt or things like that in some cases most cases you have to pay sometimes the church chips in this and that but like basically you can get off get out of the gang if you join the pentecostal church the thing is the gang wants to it's very very invested in making sure that you're following through on that commitment Um, and the gang doesn't ask for you to they don't give you a, a theological test and they don't you know give you a question you to make sure your theology is all right, they watch what you do. And you can do that in prison every single day. Everyone knows what you do. You can do almost nothing that's hidden in prison. And so in the same way, I don't know if, um, who am I to say whether someone has an authentic faith faith practice or not, I, I really didn't want to put myself in the situation where I'm the one saying, well, this person is really given their life to God, but this person is just pretending or something like that. And so I said, oh, we can look at what they do. And um, everyone does that in prison. They, lo- they watch what you do. And I also think part of it is what you do can sometime inform your theology as well. And wanted to kind of get away from these abstracts, focusing on kind of the abstract thoughts and even some of the identity stuff and look at more practical um, ways. So that's why I chose to do that part of it. And...
1: No, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to prompt you again about the sorts of practices, like the dress, the sharing, etc. Um, What sort of practices stood out to you, or seemed to be really quite important?
2: Um, this, the first thing, the singing, the worship, was much more important than uh, maybe I had realized. Maybe this is from my own religious background, but I guess in my mind it was kind of like, well, the singing's nice and things like that, but the real heart of the service is the sermon, and being inside of prison. There's a lot of singing, not a lot of instruments, but a lot of singing and uh, realizing kind of what this worship, this daily worship sort of does um, I, was really remarkable and the role of worship and the role of music um, in this place. One, as to teach theology, like the songs that are sung were often you know, a way of teaching theology, but there was something it was doing also to relieve the suffering or to uh, you know healings a word people a lot of people use I don't know about that but there was there was that aspect to it as well and so throughout the year that I was there a lot of my own initial interpretations of events or or services changed throughout the year and this was definitely one of them watching the worship and not seeing the worship as something that is uh, kind of an appetizer for the main course but something that is really um, important to day-to-day life and doing it every day. So that was one. Um, certainly then the preaching and the testimony, the men would vote on their pastor. And, uh, you know, they said the most important thing is we see how they live their day-to-day life. And so there was, you know, very some very skilled preachers who were there um, and they would Were voted on by their peers but they were more than preachers like they were real you know leader kind of leaders of the whole group and they became the pastors became you know one of the most important people in the prison certainly behind the the gang leaders as far as their influence Um, so this idea of uh and the hierarchy that was there there's a you know a definite hierarchy in the in the church practice and there was Uh, communal fasting campaigns, uh, you know, the 21-day fast from 7 to 7 at night. Uh, I was there for a few baptisms, and that was really remarkable um, to see kind of everyone chip in, and the church would take offerings and buy fruit and Someone would Some of these things, I don't know how they happen. Like, I don't know how they get the bathtub, the, the kiddie pool in there and things like that. I mean, some of this is who, a lot of a lot goes into that prison and comes out of that prison. So the least of their concerns is how they get the kiddie pool in there for the bath, the bathtubs. But they would do that and they get the baptism robes on and things like that. And there's this real sense of uh, pride's not the right word, but I go back to dignity and to say, you know, this is what we're doing in here like look at what we're we know this guy we know who he was and he's gone through this incredible transformation and here in this dirty grungy prison we can have this beautiful ceremony and have you know make it look as nice as possible and so um i you know parts of the other that you'd see on the outside happen inside of prison as well. And then there was all sorts of stuff I couldn't see. Um, the sort of, they, they have prayer every single night, you know, from like, a, I forget what, 10, 9.30 to 10 or something like that, you know, in the in the cells. And they had um, all sorts of discipleship things that were going, um, going on amongst, amongst themselves. And I feel like now there are some more outside organizations who are providing more structured programs But when I was there, it was the men, the inmates themselves would just do it. And um, they would have some guest speakers or that would come in and visit and preach and things like that. But it was also up to the prison pastor and the gang, to be honest, who they let in. And so the pastor who I mentioned, who was slaying everyone in the spirit, like he was a real wild card. They didn't let him back in after that. Like he was not a trustworthy person because um, and so. There's, they're the ones who dictated who came in to speak to them and and who didn't. And if they didn't want
1: you there, you didn't come back. So that is a, that's, it's really interesting to see how the gang structures the religious practice, both by sort of testing authenticity, like are you showing up? Can we visibly see it? Um, But I also by managing the extent to which the outside church or the church outside the prison also relates with them. Mm hmm. Your final chapter, uh, brings up a a thing that I've been referencing a couple of times that, that we've both talked about a couple of times, which is the politics of presence. And you argue for the importance of being present shoulder to shoulder with prisoners and the way that the Pentecostal church does that in a way that maybe no other institution seems to be. Um, could you talk a little bit about that, especially because as you've just described, the prisoners are not, um, without any agency, uh, in these interactions, but could you talk about this standing shoulder to shoulder component of, uh, of the faith?
2: Yeah. I mean, when I was at the jail, they had, uh, all sorts of people were showing up at this, I shouldn't say all sorts, but I mean, there was some churches that would come every week. Some would come every other week. Someone, you know, would just stop coming. One time a a woman, I mean, she was, I don't know, 70, five years old or she just kind of got off a bus and walked to the prison and knocked on the door and said, "Uh, you know, God told me to come to this prison today. And I remember thinking, well, good luck getting in. And then a half an hour later, there we were inside of the cell blocks and she was singing a song to the guys in there. And so things like that happened all the time. And they were getting, they were having so many Pentecostals wanting to come in that they said, okay, we got to get everyone together in a group and let's get a schedule down because it's getting too chaotic. And so I was able to kind of see everyone who was there. And there were, you know, I think 12 or 13 Pentecostal groups, one spiritist guy who was I never saw him in the prison after that or before, but he was at the group and there was no Catholic representation, though I know some Catholics did show, but they were I just never saw them there. And so um, there were the Pentecostals, they were there all the time and um visiting almost every day and the other groups just weren't doing that and then and this was you know 10 years ago um so before the sort of online people weren't posting things maybe twitter existed then i don't know but people weren't posting things like they're posting things now and so it was very much a a uh human to human sort of presence that was important and I still think that's very very important um, and I think that I think for me looking back that's really a model in many ways and how to engage with prisons is to be there day after day it's powerful to the men who are in there um, it doesn't go viral and people don't really see it unless you have you know it's, it's, the random sociologist who's in there who can kind of notate it or things like that, but it's it largely goes on scene. Now they go back to their congregations and they talk about the prison work they're doing. And there's usually openings for people to go visit these places. And so in some way there is sort of a campaign aspect to it, because when you walk into these prisons, like there's just such shocking places. Um, I guess the jail that I had gone to, I think is closed now, but it's just, it, it you can't help, but, uh, it has an impact on you. And so some of these sort of um, ideas about prison reform or things like that do filter out that way. But the main thing that's going on is people are visiting people in need. They're taking time out of their day. They're doing things that are not seen by hundreds or thousands of people. They're not boiled down into 40 words or whatever it is. Um, And they often, they can go a they take some, some some risk by going in these places. They're costly endeavors because it takes forever to get there using not a lot of resources. But I think it's a powerful message in saying that like, you know that we're on your side in certain ways. Not to say everything you've done is right because we're here all the time. And I think that's difficult to argue with.
1: There are a number of places where you engage with the complicated – legacy and and actions of the church of the pentecostal church in brazil and engage with some of the criticisms uh that are made of it and i want to leave those for for readers because i think it's it's really good reading Uh, but this is definitely one place where it shines through how there's not really another institution or group doing what the pentecostal church is doing in this particular kind of interaction before we go could you tell us what's next and what's now after this book
2: yeah, I'm, I'm currently doing a project at Parchment Prison in Mississippi on uh, religion inside of prison there. there um, Parchment Prison has kind of historically been one of the worst prisons in the U.S. And things bottomed out in a horrible prison riots during the end of uh, 2019, 2020. And there's been this remarkable transformation that's starting here. Um, it's starting now. And one of the things that is part of this is they have you know, new leadership, new administration, kind of a new vision, but also they have um, four-year, fully accredited prison seminaries that are operating in the prison of Southern Baptist Seminaries, and so the men will go through there. Um, most of them have life sentences without parole, um, and they'll go through a four-year uh, college program, and then upon release, they'll either pastor. There's they have similar pastor churches or become peer mentors, uh, counselors and, and things like that. So I've been going there for the last year um, and hopefully we'll be doing a book and a film uh, with uh, Pepperdine, their uh, university, um, over the next couple of years. So that's, that's what I'm working on now.
1: Well, it's very exciting. Uh, I will be curious to, to see what the sort of comparison points uh, you make between the two settings are. Yeah, there are a
2: lot there. I mean, there are obviously culturally very a lot of differences, but there are a lot of similarities also. And uh, and so it's really been a yeah, it's been a a, a good year so far. And I think next year, we're we'll, uh, looking forward to spending more time there as well.
1: Well, thank you for your time and for sharing your excellent book with us today, Andrew. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate the invitation. And
2: uh, yeah, thank you for hearing me out.